believe the greatest question we can ask with our life is not what shall we do, but who is God calling us to become? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus invites us into His mission when He says, therefore go into all the world and make disciples. And here's what this means. It means we're not simply just called to follow Jesus. It means we had a partner with the Holy Spirit in seeing others apprentice under, follow Jesus themselves. In other words, we're called to be disciples who make disciples. Here at New Life, we simply say more people, more like Jesus. This is not a slogan. This is a commitment to becoming. It's about spiritual formation and apprenticeship. So this year, as we renew our commitment to discipleship as a church, we believe there are four priorities or lenses through which God is calling us to see our mission as a church, that we will gather the lost, we will glue in community, grow as disciples and go on mission. Awesome. Could I invite you to stand as we read out the scriptures for this afternoon? So this afternoon's Bible readings will be from Romans 12 verses 1 to 2, as well as 2 Corinthians 3.18. So Romans says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. Awesome. So good to be here with each of you this afternoon. Apparently, you know, my name's Alex, last name's Stark. That therefore means that I'm the second best-looking Stark in the room this afternoon. I'm cool with it. It's fine. Another clap. Wow, strong. Strong ego from the front. It's not going to happen again, I promise. Oh. Hey, um, it's a delight just to sit in these scriptures this afternoon and unpack what is a key discipleship priority for us as a church, outlining not just where we're going, but actually celebrating parts of what we think is already, in a sense, the case with us as a church. We want to grow as disciples. To kick off, I wanted to share an illustration, and I will say this, I have shared this illustration before, and if you're like, man, that's not new content, I'd just say, look, I'm not a content creator, you know, calm down. But it's a helpful story, because it gets our mind in the right place. When I was younger, I was, um, I was working on a house with my dad. Uh, my dad's a chippy by trade. In fact, you need to know two things about my dad uh, to understand this story a bit. My dad's a carpenter by trade, and he's not a Christian. Uh, my dad's an incredible man, but those two facts remain the same today. And I was working on this house with him, which sort of gives you the impression that, like, I work on houses, which I don't, so don't be fooled. But we're working on a house, and as is typically the case, he was, like, doing this craftsman-like artisan work. I think he was, like, chiseling out some laminate of wood so he could hang a hinge on which he could hang a door. And I was, like, sweeping the rubble. Any laborers in the room this afternoon? Yeah, no one. Awesome. <laughs> if you're a laborer, you'd understand why that was a hard task for me. Anyway, there's not much glory in what I was doing. We're working together, and as we were working, my dad turns to me and he says, Hey, Alex, Jesus was a carpenter, wasn't he? Now, at this point, again, my dad's a chippy, and he's not a Christian. And so my evangelistic spidey senses are tingling. I'm like, oh, maybe we can have a Jesus conversation, you know? And I, I turn to my dad and I say, Hey, Dad, like, no, yes, he was. To the best of our knowledge, we think he was a carpenter. Why do you ask? 
And he turns to me and he just says, well, I just want to make sure that I'm doing what Jesus would do. <laughs> it's sweet. It's nice. Kind of paints a nice picture. And my dad didn't know it at the time, but he was kind of asking one of the most fundamental questions of life. A question around who we might become and how our ordinary, everyday life can participate in becoming like Jesus. Now, the target that he landed that answer of that question upon was probably a bit inappropriate, carpentry, but it's the most fundamental question. What would Jesus do? Or as more modern commentators would phrase it, what would Jesus do if he were me? It's the question of discipleship. And as a church, we're in the third week of a four-week series where we're unpacking our vision. And we want to answer the question, what does it mean to exist and be at New Life across the family of our churches, but especially here in Brisbane? And we don't want to leave that question unanswered. We want to be able to answer it in such a way that we give context to the whole of the activity that we do as this church. That in other words, the vision that we articulate should be so all-encompassing that it makes sense of what we do, and that if anything else we want to do in the future comes up, it comes through this grid. Is it within our vision? Does it have strategic priority? Is it a discipleship priority for us? And in answer to that question, we've articulated four things. They'll be on the screen behind me. We want to gather the lost. We want to glue in community. We want to grow as disciples, and we want to go on mission. Gather, glue, grow, go. And today, we're talking about a topic that kind of gives context to the whole, discipleship. We want to grow as disciples. And before I get into it, I just want to acknowledge two kinds of people in the room. Because all of us here have a story, a background, a worldview, an experience, and I want to acknowledge two kinds of people in the room as you're listening to this. The first kind of person that could be in the room is the non-Christian, someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who comes to church for the first time perhaps this afternoon thinking, hey, maybe I'll hear the story of Jesus really helpfully and it'll help me, you know, examine whether it's true and whether I should follow this Jesus guy. And I want to acknowledge that you're in the room and that today you're sort of stepping in and eavesdropping on a conversation that we're having inside the church. And you might think, hey, that sounds really unhelpful. I want to know the, the pure story of the, of the Christian gospel. It might sound unhelpful, but something I've come to realize is that when you're ever examining a truth claim, there's two ways to examine a truth claim. One is to ask whether the claim that someone's making about reality corresponds to reality, and in which case it's therefore rational, in which case there's probably evidence for it. And what Christians would say is that the worldview of Christianity is rational. There's evidence for it. You're not deluded when you become a Christian. You don't check your brain out of the door of the church when you come to know Jesus. Christianity is rational. But I'm not talking about that way of examining truth today. The second way you can examine whether something's true is if you try it on and ask whether it gives technicolor to life. C.S. Lewis would say when in, the, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen, not simply because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And what he was saying is not simply that Christianity has evidence and therefore is rational. He's saying that when I try Christianity on, when I follow Jesus, when I give myself to the worldview and inhabit the way of Jesus, it gives technicolor to the whole. It explains my reality in a way that I've never experienced before. Christianity is unparalleled on that score. And so here's my encouragement today. If you're not a Christian and you've got no framework for faith, I just encourage you, try this on. 
was reading a book last year, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and John Ortberg, a pastor from the States, he was talking about John Mark Homer, the writer of that book, and he said this about John, and I think it's applicable to disciples by and large. He said, John Mark Homer has paid such a price to gain a life without a price. And he was talking about what it means to be a disciple. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you pay a price. It's costly. But what you gain in return is without a price. It's priceless. Eternal life, meaning, hope, value, all of these myriad of universal values. And so here's the encouragement. If you're not a Christian today, try this on. Growing as a disciple. The second person in the room is just the seasoned Christian. You might be here today and you're like, man, if I hear Alex say more people more like Jesus one more time, I think I'm going to walk out. Or you watch the video from Mike and he says something like, you know, more important than what we're doing is. You're like, man, I'm just sick of this language. If Alex says that one more time, you know, I'm just going to pray for him. That's what I'm going to do. And I would just say, look, there's an element in which that's fair. If there's a degree to which we're like a broken record giving language around things that we're not actually truly becoming, we'd be rightfully disenchanted. But our hope as a church is not that this would be tokenistic language with which we congratulate ourselves or feel cute about ourselves. Our hope would be that this is the driving heart beat of our church. So when we say more people more like Jesus, it's not just a catchy slogan. It's foundational. And when we say we're going to prioritize becoming, it's not just a 2021 theme that we're retiring. It's actually going to be our lives. We want to live lives of becoming, of becoming more like Jesus. And so if you feel disenchanted with that language, I think the question comes back to you, well, who are you becoming? Because if you're truly a disciple on the way of Jesus, awaiting the day that he comes to make everything right, and you're participating in that day by living lives that look like him, then you're pumped about becoming. But that's the challenge. The point of the Christian life is not to come to church and hear fresh language every week. It's actually to, to come to the ancient story of Jesus, repeated day in, day out with a fresh sight. And so my prayer today would be if that you feel a bit tired in the room or you feel a bit disenchanted with the language, I'd just say, ask the Holy Spirit to speak today. And so to do that, let me pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here. But God, we just want to know you more. Thank you that there's nowhere that you're not present, but we ask for your manifest presence today, particularly as we hear your word. Father, help me for, to forget what's unhelpful and to call to mind and speak what might be helpful, all for the sake of us becoming more like your son. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So why discipleship? Someone asked me this recently. They're like, Alex, like it sounds nice. More people, more like Jesus. You know, we want to become like him. What, what does that even mean? And why do we want to even do it? Like, where does that idea come from in the Bible? And so it's really helpful to actually articulate this because when we think about Jesus, he was a first century Middle Eastern Jewish male carpenter. And what we're not saying when we say we need to become like Jesus is that all of us need to become first century Middle Eastern, Jewish carpenters. We're not saying that. We're saying something a bit deeper than that, a bit more holistic than that, a bit bigger than 
that. And to understand what it means to become like Jesus, you kind of got to trace the whole storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, one of the key ideas that the Bible uses to talk about what it means to be human is this idea that humanity is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It's repeated twice elsewhere uh, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and it's used of Jesus later. Uh, but it's this idea that humanity is made in the image of God. Now, that word, image, comes from the Hebrew selim. It was used by other ancient Near Eastern cultures by which to talk about their king. And what Babylonian and Egyptian, particularly, cultures would do is they would say that their king is made in the image of God. And what that meant for everyone else is that they weren't. And what therefore becomes important is the will of the king of that culture, and everyone else becomes the butler or the slave to outwork the will of the king. Why? Because in those cultures, the king was made in the image of God. They had this status, this elitist view of the king. But in the biblical story, it's a bit different. In the biblical story, we meet God. And God has the authority to spin worlds out of nothing, to take, or, to take chaos and bring order out of it, to define good and evil. In other words, God is the true king of the cosmos in the biblical story. That's already one critique of other ancient Near Eastern cultures. But then we follow the storyline of creation through, and we get to day one, two, three, all the way to six, and we meet the crown jewel of creation. And it says that on the sixth day, God made humanity. Genesis 1.26, in the image of God, he made them. And what we get, therefore, is this beautiful narrative that says those who bear the image of God, those that are created as God's images, it's not the king, it's everyone. And the implication's twofold. One, that everyone, by virtue of being human, no matter what that human looks like, sounds like, seems like, what everyone has worth, value, dignity. Everyone's loved by God in a general sense. Everyone's an image of God. But the second thing, and the thing I want to pull out right now, is that it means that all of us are called to be the agents through which God rules the world. That's the image. That's the picture. It's that every human is to be the agent through which God takes the project of creation forward. It's not the ancient king's will, who's ma who's ma will, who's matter will that matters most. It's the will of God. And more particularly, it's how God exercises his will through humans. Bit of history, I know. Thanks for coming with me. But here's the point. This is the vision of Genesis 1 and 2, the start of the biblical story. It's this, that it, God says to humans, in my presence, cultivate food, make families, build buildings, construct cities, do business, enjoy art, take the ethos of the garden and push it out across the chaos. Not so you might just make a nice world, which is part of the biblical calling, but that people might meet me. That's the vision. Now, the clincher is this, that God is the ultimate king, and he gives humanity the choice as to whether they're going to fall in line and go with his definition of good and evil and follow after him. And as the story goes, humanity turns away. We don't follow after God, we follow after our own desires. We don't follow after his definition of good and evil, we choose our own. We reject God and define good and evil for ourselves. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of the human condition, that on the one hand, we have this incredible potential to do good, right? 
like we do. And the Christian story makes sense of that. We have this incredible potential to do good, building culture, making art, designing architecture, making food, making the world a better place. But on the other hand, we have this propensity to do evil, don't we? All of us. We, to quote a wrestling song, I used to watch wrestling growing up. Um, there's a fun fact you didn't think you're in for this afternoon. And Eddie Maguire, you know, they've all got their like coming out song, and so he runs onto the wrestling mat, and there's this song that comes on, it just repeats these three words. It's like, we lie, we cheat, we steal. And it's like, why is that his song? But it's the human picture, like, we, this is what happens. We act selfishly, we don't love God and others, we, we have war, and we gossip. We do dodgy business deals and we sneakily take money, this is my story growing up, from our parents' kitchen table, like $2 that was there because we think they probably don't need it, but they'll never be any wiser. We all do this. I love what um, John Collins from the Bible Project says. He's sort of like the the, the sidekick to Tim Mackey. Uh, And he says this, he says, we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. That's the human predicament. And so the problem that the Bible presents is not just that humans are sinful and in need of forgiveness, it's that human, is that the project of creation is in a pickle and it needs humans who will rule wisely again. That's the storyline of the Bible and that's the question that the Old Testament finishes with, which means, and here's here's the key thing, in biblical language, humanity needs a priest to deal with our sin and we need a king to show us how to rule as God's images again. Isn't that beautiful? And this is why the story of Jesus is incredible. Because in the story of Jesus, we see a man who didn't just come to deal with our brokenness. He came to model a new kind of beauty. We we see in Jesus uh, someone who was the means by which we might receive forgiveness if we'd so accept it, but someone who too was the model of the new life that we're invited to live. We see in Jesus, and this is the biblical claim, that he's he's the priest who wipes away our sin. And he's the king in whose likeness we're all called to live, all at the same time. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because there's two fundamental distortions that come up in the church whenever we talk about discipleship. And the two distortions are this. It's to emphasize one picture of Jesus over the other. It's to see Jesus just as a priest who deals with our sin, Or it's to see Jesus just as a king who gives us a new way of life to apprentice under. These are two distortions. They need to go together. The the first distortion you might call legalism, and the second distortion you might call cheap grace. Legalism says that to be a Christian, I need to follow Jesus' example, or else God won't accept me. Jesus was loving, I should be loving. Jesus was a servant, I should be a servant. Jesus had a rigorous prayer life, I should have a rigorous prayer life. To be accepted by God, I need to be a perfect disciple. But do you see what's happened here? You've emphasized God's call to discipleship at the expense of God's forgiving love. Or in other words, you've seen Jesus as a king, but not as your priest. Do you see that? The second distortion we call cheap grace. Cheap grace does the exact opposite. Cheap grace says that God has forgiven me and will forgive me for anything that I do. So I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. Whatever I want. And it means nothing. I can ignore the call to take up my cross. 
I can ignore the invitation to repentance and growth. I can just settle for mediocre discipleship. Dallas Willard is a philosopher and writer on spiritual formation from the west coast of the States, passed away a few years ago, but he, he called this kind of Christianity, he called it barcode Christianity. And he said it's this idea that Christians think that all they need to do to be a Christian is meet Jesus at some random point in their life and receive from him this barcode that we hold on to until we die, such that when we meet God face to face, we show him the barcode, God, like a faithful checkout person, scans the barcode and we're in. Done. Now, on one level, the beauty of that story is that it emphasizes God's grace. The downside is it makes the grace cheap. And even worse, it puts Christians in a holding pattern where we settle for a mediocre discipleship. Why? Well, here's the thing. We've seen Jesus as a priest, but not our king. Do you see that? Two distortions that plague the church. So here's my question. And as I ask these questions, this will probably take about a minute, so get ready for this. As I ask these questions, I actually want to invite us to close our eyes. And I want to ask us, which image of Jesus do you gravitate more towards? And what's the invitation he's making to you this afternoon? So can I just encourage you, close your eyes and let me read some things over us. Maybe you gravitate more towards legalism. And you say, God, I better fix my life up, otherwise you won't accept me. You think God's performance-based? You don't enjoy your relationship with God, you just endure it, you're too busy trying to think of how not to tick him off? What would I say to you? I'd say you've lost sight of Jesus as your priest. So remember that. He's your high priest who deals with your sin. In the Christian story, God is not someone who says, radically conform your life to Jesus and then I'll accept you. He actually says, no, I accept you as you are. Now come and learn from me how to live again. Take a breath. It's okay. It's going to be okay. God's not waiting to smite you. He's actually longing to embrace you. He's your priest. He's dealt with your sin. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and just keep your eyes closed while we tie the bow in this little piece together. Maybe you find it easier to say to God, oh God, you know, you'll, you'll forgive me if I do this sin. It's okay. I don't really need to change. And all of us, we've got that one sin that we keep on performing. We've got that lifestyle that we continue to perpetuate. We've got that habit that we just can't get rid of. And you're like, look, it's all good. No big deal. I just want to say, like, we do this all the time. Heck, I, I do this all the time. We justify parts of ourselves that we don't want to come under the loving and refining gaze of God. And here's what we've done. We've lost sight of Jesus as our king. And that's a serious thing. It means that on one level, we're exploiting his loving kindness, but on a different level, it's kind of just silly. The call to discipleship is costly, but someone said it well when they said the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. And it's a foolish thing to not see Jesus as the king in whose image we're meant to imitate. And so what would I say? I'd say just remember that Jesus is your king. In fact, I'd say this. You can open your eyes now. He's your priest who's dealt with your sin. And he's the king 
who invites you into a new life. The antidote is to see God's grace is not cheap, but it's costly. I love saying it this way, that Jesus is the answer to the common human plight, problem, another helpful word, but he's also the model for the new human life. He accepts us as we are, but he won't leave us as we are. And that growth, that call, it's the call of discipleship. It's the call of becoming. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Not because we want to earn God's love, but because we want to live in God's love more fully and extend God's love more faithfully to the world that needs to know him. That's the story in which we make sense of discipleship. And we've gone the long way round in in C.S. Lewis's words to come the short way home, right? But unless you get this beautiful big picture, then you're going to lean to one either side of the distortionary tale and you'll find yourself wanting and your discipleship fractured. But what have we done? Jesus is our king and he's our priest. And because of him, we have forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, but also a model for new life that we're to apprentice in. That's discipleship. Now let's read 2 Corinthians 3 verse 8 again with that beautiful picture. This is what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the journey of discipleship. And what a vision. What a beautiful vision for what your life could be. What a beautiful invitation for how you can spend your days. But here's my question. Why is that not the vision we experience at church? Why is that not what we experience when we lay on our bed late at night thinking about who I am and who I'm becoming and why it all matters? Why why are we not there yet? Because I actually think there's a bit of a crisis of discipleship across the church. We have a lot of people right now who are identifying as Christians but don't live a life that looks like Jesus. Now, some of you here might be Christians and you've actually experienced the pain of that. But some of you here might be Christians and you just feel numb and you're like, hey, that could be me, but I I don't care. But it was Gandhi, actually, who said, I love your Christ, but I, I don't love your Christians. And he's picking up on this dissonance between who Jesus was and who we are as a church. We've got a crisis of discipleship. Now, some people want to explain this by saying, hey, look, it's probably because of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know? That came along, and it just ruined all of our church activities, and we had to rebuild from the ground up. And Other people want to say, look, it's the West. The West is in crisis, and we just need to get our politics sorted, and once that's sorted, we'll be sweet. And I'll just say these are myths. The COVID-19 pandemic didn't derail our discipleship. It just revealed where we're at. And it made it more possible for us to fast-track any semblance of revealing where we're at. And I would say still, we're in a crisis of discipleship. And the best commentators, in my opinion, they've leveled the critique this way. They've said, we're in a crisis of discipleship because we're really good at creating converts and not disciples. A convert is someone who checks their status as a Christian on the religion census every few years, but doesn't change their life. A convert is someone who agrees with a certain list of ideas about God, but doesn't apprentice under Jesus in concrete and practical ways. A convert is someone who feels comfortable with the worldview of Christianity, but feels very uncomfortable with the radical way of Jesus. A convert is someone who ultimately gives lip service to Jesus, but doesn't give their life to Jesus. The church has gotten really good at creating converts and not disciples. 
And in that sense, I just put up my hand and say, man, I want to do better at this. But we as a people need to put up a hand and say, we want to do better at this too, right? We don't want to be in the convert-making business. We want to be in the discipleship-making business to create disciples who make disciples who create disciples who make disciples, all for God's glory and the sake of the world. Legend has it that, and I stole this illustration from a book, so, you know, I'm, again, not that creative with my illustrations, but legend has it that the Crusades, the armies of the Crusaders, when they went off to battle, before they did so, they'd get baptized. And I saw someone smiling, and I'm like, oh, you probably read the book I read recently. And as they got baptized, they submerged their whole body, which is sort of what baptism means. It means to dip. They get dipped, but one thing they withheld from the dipping was their sword. And it's this imagery that they walk through the baptismal waters where we say no to our old life and yes to the new life that we have in Jesus. But here's what they were doing when they held up their swords. They were saying, God, you can have every part of me except my quest for glory and honor and dominion. That's what the Crusaders were saying. Now, you might think, cool story, you know, from the Middle Ages, really awesome, Alex. But why is that relevant to me? And I'd just say this. All of us withhold something from God when we become disciples. All of us. We might not have swords that we're using to request for glory, but we might have a habit. We might have a particular tender place in our heart that we don't want God to touch. I was preaching in Rabina this morning, and I was reminded of Gandalf at the, you know, um, in the mountain of whatever he was, but in the Lord of the Rings, where like he's standing there, and that big like demon from the underworld comes up, and he's standing, there, he's like, "You shall not pass." We do that with God, right? We might not have swords, but we've all got things. We say to God, God, you can have my life, except that part of me that I most want to keep. You can have access to my religion status, Jesus, but you can't have access to my addictions, my habits, my desires, my lifestyle. You can have access to my friends' issues, but you can't have access to my issues. You can have access to my beliefs about the world, but you can't have access to my fundamental goals that shape my life, like buying a house or growing our cryptocurrency, or climbing the corporate ladder. None of these things are necessarily bad. But if we don't let our fundamental goals that we have be refined, critiqued, constructed, and rebuilt in our relationship with Jesus, then we're saying to God, you can have this part of me, but not that. And you settle for conversion and not discipleship. Because discipleship is the activity of living all of our life before the face of God that he might refine it, renew it, and turn it into the image of his Son. We're withholding parts of ourselves. And here's what we want to say at New Life. And this is the point of my sermon right now. Not us. Here's what we want to say at New Life. This will not be our story. Not by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, and by the participation of His people. This will not be our story. Yeah, good, awesome. Right? Like, what? we don't want to play church, we want to follow Jesus. We don't want to just feel good in a building, we want to be a missionary to our workplace. We don't want to just be people who are in the conversion-making business, we want to be in the discipleship-making business who makes disciples who makes disciples. It's not going to be our story. Not by the power of God, not by the Spirit of God, not by the participation of His people. This won't be our story. We were talking as a leadership team last year, and it was honestly one of the most encouraging conversations I've had in my time. Well, I've had very encouraging conversations at New Life, but we're having this conversation as a leadership team on the Gold Coast. 
location pastors were in the room and Pastor Mike was there and the executive leadership team were there and we were reflecting on the fact that, you know, like different churches around the world are known for different things. And so, for example, there's a church based in Sydney and they release a worship album probably every second day and they're known for creating awesome worship music and it's beautiful, we should celebrate that. And there's other churches, they might be down the road from us and they're very charismatic, you know, you go to their services and God's there and it's like, whoa, I didn't know you could experience God that way. And they're like, oh, that's the charismatic church. And there's other churches where the preaching of the word is, you know, it's just like on fire and the scriptures are upheld and some weeks it's expository and other weeks it's like topical, but you hear the scriptures throughout it the whole time and it's awesome. And, and Mark asked this question. He said, what would it look like if new life became known for making disciples? Now, two things. I sit under Mike's leadership. Sure, he's a colleague, he's a friend. We're chummy, it's awesome. But I sit under his leadership too as a pastor here in location at Brisbane. And to have the person that I, who's, under whose leadership I sit say, what if we became known for discipleship? It brought such a relief to my heart. Because we're not, we're not here to do anything else. This is what God wants to do. This is what church is for. It's being a community who makes space for discipleship to grow. What if new life became known for making disciples? And the answer is, well, yeah, we can do that. And today I just want to unpack two really quick ways as I land the plane here that we're doing intentionally to see to it that new life church through hell or high water will become a church that makes disciples. And the first way is a very intentional way. Uh, in the moment, we'll turn to the screens and you'll see Mike, and he's going to announce something we're calling Catalyst, an intentional discipleship pathway. So turn your heads to the screens and enjoy this little update from Pastor Mike. Who are you becoming? How are you becoming? What is shaping you every day? We're in a moment of pronounced cultural upheaval. What we may fail to realize as the church is that like never before, the society around us is shaping and forming the emerging leaders of tomorrow. This is done through unprecedented digital consumption, through cultural shifts and instability in what we believe and how we think and function as a society. The church in the West is on the decline and cultural Christianity is no longer a thing of the present, but that of the past. But this is not the first time the church has been in a moment like this. No, this has happened before in history. In World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian, was disillusioned with how the church was giving way and bowing to the reign of the Third Reich and the Nazi party. And so he started a countercultural movement of forming the emerging leaders of tomorrow in a place called Finkenwald, where emerging leaders could come, be formed and shaped in the ways of Jesus Christ to become more like Jesus. When Dietrich's friends came along and saw the strict regiment with which he trained and formed these young leaders, they said to him, this is too much, this is too hard, why are you doing it like this? And Dietrich led them to the top of the hill and they looked down on what was a training camp for the Hitler Youth, where young men and women were trained up in the worldview of the Third Reich. And he said this to them, what we are doing as the church must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. 
until the good of our formation is stronger than the evil the formation of the worldview of the Nazi party, they will win. This must be stronger than that. Bonhoeffer understood something important, that if the church does not take formation seriously, then we will be formed by the loudest voice in our world. And for us to see emerging leaders to become more like Jesus, the formation of the church must be stronger than the formation of the world. But this will not happen by accident. We are passionate in your life about raising the leaders of tomorrow by taking seriously their discipleship today. The church should be involved in the raising of emerging leaders for both the ministry and the marketplace. For the planting and thriving of the future of the church and new churches needs both ministry and marketplace leaders to be developed and formed. And this is what Catalyst seeks to do. Catalyst, in short, is a year of discipleship where a cohort of emerging leaders dedicate time to be formed in the way of Christ. Ultimately, Catalyst will have three phases of experiential formation. Knowing God, being a disciple, and leading with wisdom and courage. Asking the question pretty much of how does God form our head, our heart, and our head. We believe that from Catalyst will come the future church planters, future prime ministers, future lawyers, leaders, builders, doctors, mothers and fathers, and the emerging leaders of tomorrow. It's a ministry that will be filled with retreats, with community, with experiential learning and a deepening of faith and intimacy in the following of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're interested in knowing how God wants to form your leadership and influence to bless the world of tomorrow and glorify Him, if you're interested in taking your formation seriously, if you're an emerging leader, then Catalyst is for you. We'd love to see you at our first interest night. You can sign up at church.nu slash catalyst. Hope to see you there. Awesome. If you are asking the question, how can I take my discipleship seriously? Consider Catalyst. Not as something to tick the box on, but as an intentional step that you can take to be formed in a rigorous environment alongside those who take the same call seriously and become more like Jesus, setting you up, perhaps refreshing you, but all the more in your becoming. But what about the rest of us? How do we become like Jesus? How do we grow as disciples? And friends, we start with you. That's where it all comes back to. It starts with each of us. The call to discipleship is actually quite simple. We make it complex because it involves us. We bring the complexity to the table, but the call is quite simple. The biblical language for the journey of discipleship is just this, repentance and faith. That's not a one-off event that you do at some point. It's actually a daily rhythm that you find yourself in. Repentance is the act of turning away from our old life. And faith, it's the act of living our everyday embodied life in trust of God, living the life that God invites us into. Some of the words that I found helpful in talking about this journey is surrender and participation. You surrender your life, your earthly projects, your earthly plans, and then you participate in the life and the lifestyle that Jesus invites you into. 
Before I had Dylan read Romans 12 verses 1 to 2 in the NIV, I want to read for us Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that passage. He puts it so beautifully, but this summarizes the Christian life in two verses with a bit of, you know, at-libbing on his part, which we're thankful for. He said this, Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. And unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And so you want to know what I'm excited for? I'm excited for New Life Brisbane to be a people that are known for discipleship. Right? That should get us out of bed. That should see us turning up at church. That should see us bringing our whole selves to our discipleship small groups and and being prepared to contribute and, and take part in the mission here. We want to see more people more like Jesus. I see a church that when people meet them on the streets, there's this overflowing love that just sort of exudes out of them. I see a church that because of what they do, not just on Sundays, but every single day in their ordinary life, that when they go to work on a Monday, their colleagues think, man, this person has something that I don't. I see a church that's passionate about discipleship. And that's the call. That's the invitation. But the difference between a vision and reality is you. How's your repentance and faith? I see a church that's passionate about discipleship. I wanted to make sure that as I preached this afternoon that I wasn't the only voice that you heard up here. I wanted to paint the picture of discipleship so helpfully that we might be inspired, but I also wanted to ask someone from our church to come and share just how their discipleship journey is going so that we in the congregation might actually see someone's story and think, oh, wow, this is possible. Change is possible. Apprenticeship under Jesus is possible. And it's not just possible, it's good. And so I've teed someone up um, to to come and share with us this afternoon, and Aaron's going to play along in the background. We've got five more minutes of sharing. Um, But as he comes up, would you give him a round of applause? Dan Milne, come on up. Hey, how you going? Good, how are you? I'm great. Oh, yeah. Light on, mic on. Hello? Yeah, nice. I learned that two weeks ago. You're in good company. Yeah, yeah. You been at the races today? I was, yeah. I was out at Willow Bank today. Yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah, just letting Amazing. us know that we should have, like, different lifestyles because that's really cool. Yeah, awesome. Dan, I've got three questions for you today, and you want to share a bit of your story. Yeah. And ultimately, we're going to talk about what God's done, but um, you've had a pretty awesome last few years. How would you describe yourself before what the last few years were? Yeah, so I haven't used one of these before. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in a Christian family. Um, and then I walked away at one point. Um, I became a very arrogant, stubborn individual. Um, I really only cared for myself, partying on the weekends. And then four years ago, had this moment where I started trying to come to church. Um, yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, okay. So you paint this picture, you're a bit unfocused, a bit, bit upset with who you might have been, and mm. what happened? Yeah, so um, walking this journey for, for, year, for probably three years, I was dragging my past attitudes and behaviours with me um, and sort of I got stuck feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere um, and then a year ago roughly I moved to Brisbane and uh, found myself here in this church, made friends um, out of a church environment and being in that environment I was surrounded by people who inspired me to develop that relationship with God further um, and that led me to be the person I am today yeah wow so when you say God was working you'd say it was the people he put in your life and the environment he put you in and yeah and how's things going today you're a disciple of Jesus you're following him how's it going yeah so sorry (laughs) um it's going good yeah my prayer life is flourishing um more than it ever has before um when i'm reading the bible i'm reading it deeper than i have previously but the biggest thing for me has been developing that relationship with jesus i think um in the past it's been like a really cool tagline um, that i've heard before and like the sound of but i'm really just starting now to learn what that means and what that can mean for me. Mm. Um, and I'm just so glad that I've been led down this path and I'm so excited to see where it leads. So good. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Mate, it's been a joy. I've come in on the back end of this story. Yeah, but we sat down last year for coffee and you shared some of the things you were working through and... Yeah, and I was chatting with Dan on the phone earlier today and he had this line, it was so funny, he's like, God's just doing amazing things. How do I not sound, how do I sound humble when I say it? <laughs> but I think when I hear your story, man, I, I, I just get this image of Jesus saying, look, I'm just not done yet and I'm not done with you and I'm not done with this church and this is what God does, he makes disciples. And so, bro, why don't you grab a seat? Can we give Dan a round of applause as he goes down? And so what about you? Like, where are you at? What could God be doing? And where could you be oriented to go? You're in a room full of people who would stand shoulder to shoulder with you and say, let's become like Jesus together for the good of ourselves, the glory of God, and the sake of the world. This week I was worshipping in my car, which is a good pastime. And uh, I was listening to an old school song that I thought might be a really beautiful way to respond. As I talk about this song, can I invite you to stand? The band will come up behind me and we'll get prepared to worship. But there's this beautiful song that I used to sing as a teenager. And it's called From the Inside Out. And it's such a beautiful picture of what God invites us to do as disciples. Because sure, we participate. Don't get me wrong, there are concrete actions we can do as we play our part. But ultimately it's surrender, because this is what God does. God is in the business of making disciples. And when you surrender to God, He makes it such that your discipleship is not something you fabricate or manufacture, 
but that happens from the inside out of who you are. That the practices of Jesus aren't duty, but delight. The way of Jesus is not a heavy chain, but a light burden. That the lifestyle of Jesus is not this oppressive yoke, but an easy life where we give ourselves to gain something that's without price, following after Jesus. And so we're going to sing. And as we sing, can I just invite you, maybe think about the one thing that you've withheld from God that we were talking about earlier. Maybe think what's holding you back in your discipleship. Or maybe just lift up to the heavens your heart to Jesus and sing, my God, my God, consume me from the inside out in surrender and praise. Let's sing together.